Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Miles Dimitri Baker from the band Interloper, formerly from Rings of Saturn. And uh, this guy is a ridiculously awesome guitar player and so interesting to talk to. His knowledge of how music works just runs deep as fuck. I hope you enjoy it. Here goes. Miles Dimitri Baker, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you, man. Stoked to be here. So I want to clarify one thing right off the bat. You said that you took seven lessons a week, like the same teacher seven times or seven teachers or what? It was th- three teachers. So it was, um, I was taking in high school. So it was like a, a class during the day. So I had that class. So that was one of one every day so i had like five music lessons basically you know during like your period in high school and then i had two private lessons a week outside of that i was taking lessons from someone named oliver althwin and that was for like classical guitar and theory and then i was taking um lessons with nick cordell he used to play with like arsis and arch enemy and dude's just like a monster that was the seventh you know so like collectively seven throughout the week i mean it wasn't like that for like years and years but there was a period of time where that was definitely what was happening uh, how many hours a day were you spending on the instrument? Wow, probably like seven, you know, at least. It was it was all I did, man. It was all I wanted to do and all I enjoyed doing. So I, you know, would <laughs> stop hanging out with my friends and all that kind of stuff and then just started playing that, broke up with my girlfriend, and then it was, you know, I was getting like makeup work at school. I'd tell the teachers, like, hey, I'm not coming in tomorrow. Can I just have the work for tomorrow? And they'd like be like, whatever and just give it to me so it was just like all day that was all i did man yeah i feel like uh high school is the time to do that shit yeah i think so because you know at that time i had more time in my life you know a lot less responsibility you know overall so and i just it was like i was passionate about it you know it's not like i was 25 and had you know this whole life that i've already kind of started and now it's time to like you know try to drop everything and play guitar (laughs) you know you don't have time as much when you're older so i think that's a good time for people to get into something especially if they are interested in it. it's not like your parents being like hey do this do this do this you know and like burning you out it's like if you have an interest at that age you are doing yourself a disservice not acknowledging that in my opinion yeah how did you uh organize that time because there's there's different ways to approach seven hours a day like you could approach it in a super focused fashion where it's goal oriented and uh you know split up into 
whatever it is you want to work on, or you can just fucking noodle. And I, I know lots of people who said that they practiced 10 hours a day or whatever, but they sucked. I would watch how they practiced and they weren't really practicing. They were just kind of like fucking around and then they'd like play a couple scales and they fuck around some more and then just fuck around and fuck around and fuck around and fuck around. That's totally a valid thing because there's times and I notice this more now, you know, as I'm like older, I, I fuck around a lot more, you know, it's hard for me <laughs> to sit down and like hit, hit the fucking metronome like I used to and just like grind. I'm like, I'm fucking burnt, dude. I don't want to do this. I just want to like write tunes or like do something like that. But, um, early on, dude, it was, it was really focused. You know, there were times where I was just so hyper focused into what is happening with the instrument and just like what I'm doing with it and specifically working on maybe, you know, my alternate picking or maybe I'm working on sweeps or maybe I'm just like running this song that is like so far above my fucking ability you know, <laughs> to like try to get it. And then, um, you know, with the theory and stuff, there was a lot of memorization with that. So I, I would say that the most most part, it was definitely a very focused practice. But then, I mean, dude, it's like anyone. You, you're not always going to be like at full attention all the time. So I'm sure there were plenty of times where if I, you know, had an instrument and had the instrument in my hand for, you know, eight hours in a day, maybe I really got like five out of it. <laughs> yeah. You know? I don't think that writing tunes is necessarily a bad thing. It's just that the focus has shifted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to hit break the sound barrier anymore, you know. I'm it's not it's not so fun for me and you know, you get older and you're it's not like my hands hurt, but you know, they're a little creaky. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I try to just you know, I try to just have fun. And I mean, sometimes it is really fun to just sit there and like, you know, woodshed and just rip on a metronome and just try to do speed stuff. It's cool, <laughs> but not all the time, you know, cause it requires constant upkeep is the problem. You take like a day or two off and it's like, all right, I guess I got to work back up to this. <laughs> That's not fun, dude. You're like, it puts too much pressure on playing. You know, if you want to go out for the weekend and be like, fuck it, I want to just go drink and like not play guitar. You're like going to have like catastrophic damages to your playing, you know, and you're gonna have to like try to fix it. it. Sucks. How many days can you go before you start to notice technical faculties disappearing? Probably like two. Probably like two or three. After three, it's like, yep, I feel it. It's just it's weird. It feels like my hands are separate. It's the synchronization and my picking hand are what tend to go. They go from being very comfortable and in sync to I'm like focusing on it i'm basically i'm like having to think about it is what's happening instead of it just being there and that's that's the issue remember this really great violinist and i forget which one said this and i'm paraphrasing but if i take one day off i notice it if i take two days off the conductor notices it if i take three days off the public notices it yeah basically. yeah I've, I've heard that similar phrase i, I don't remember from who but yeah that's i mean dude it's true and what's crazy is there's some people who can take all the fucking time off in the world and it doesn't matter like they're fine that's crazy to me dude i don't get that i know most people take you know a couple days off and it's a problem you know and then you see these dudes like yeah i haven't played like a month and they're just ripping it's like how how are you not having a problem here <laughs> you know it's like upsetting dude i'm like are you kidding it's like how do you do that i'm like maybe i just suck maybe i haven't been playing long enough are they telling the truth, first of all? Yeah, maybe they're just being like, you know, the guy out in the 30-degree weather with his T-shirt and shorts. Yeah, I'm not I'm cold. Fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. I don't I'm feel not cold it. At all. Yeah, or like the sun. Yeah, I don't need sunscreen. It's like, okay, dude. Yeah, you're stronger than the sun, for sure. 
Or maybe it's just that they're not focusing on those same qualities that maybe you notice. It might just be that they're trying to, I wouldn't say trying, it's just that maybe they just don't notice it because they don't, they've never actually acknowledged it. Could be. Also, say they haven't played for a month and you see them play. Maybe you didn't see like that it really hasn't been a month. Maybe they took a month off and have played the last three days or something and have gotten their shit back. Oh yeah. Stealthy dude. Yeah. Well, I think that lots of really great players, great athletes do this too. I don't know if you've noticed, but they try to downplay how hard they have to work to be amazing. Not always. Some will tell you exactly how hard they work, but I've met quite a few people over the years who just make it sound like it's nothing. Like they're just like this, you know, we know it's not true. No one's just like that. But, uh, but I do think that maybe they're sick of talking about it. That could be part of it. Maybe they know that no one's going to understand how hard they had to work. So why go into it? But maybe they also just want you to believe that they were beamed down from the comet, like, (laughs) like playing like Paul Gilbert or something. Yeah, dude. I mean that, that definitely could be it. I think, I think that's true because there's um there's a level of just like people being on this like professional tier with no mistakes that exists and I think dude I mean this is almost like going into a whole other topic but like the modern metal world with like shred guitar players and the production that exists where it's you know you hear these solos all I hear a solo come in you know on a track from a band and I immediately am like yep you note for noted that or like that was sped up you know it's like I just fucking hear it you know I'm like you're fucking bastard (laughs) I can hear this you know like that's cool and it's fine but dude the the problem you see with that is there's like a lot of younger dudes who are um, trying to reach that like level of perfection you know I guess that was myself included you know like I heard bands like rings you know before I was in them I was like dude I want to play like that you know and i like really tried and got like pretty pretty close you know <laughs> it was like as close as i could get yeah it just creates this kind of like fake image and it's nice to it's nice to see people who are like gnarly players blow it you know it's just a cool thing it's kind of it brings the human element to it and understanding that people do make mistakes because if there's this just like godlike guy i don't know i'm just thinking like beard oil and like tanning and like flexing when he's tying his shoes or something but like with an instrument i don't know that's i don't know there's a ton of people who probably use beard oil but that's just like the image i think of in my head there's this playthrough video that bard the drummer from leprous did ah yes that band and, is so uh, good. he's a fucking ridiculously great drummer that band is awesome it's like five minutes into the song he drops a stick brown you know what i'm talking about i know exactly which one yeah yeah he drops a stick and you know it just keeps going he recovers but uh people in the comments love that that was kept in i love that that was kept in because these days you don't know what you're looking at when you see a video that a musician posts so to leave that in you know that they're the real deal yeah i i agree man and um you know like you're like you're saying with you don't know what you're seeing um you know even as like people who play really well for example you could mime stuff and no one's going to know because like you are you know you're just that solid you know like you're going to play it the same way every time maybe like your bend was off you know but like who cares that kind of stuff so it, it is you know anytime you see like a direct audio thing that is a uh, suspect immediately like the, the bell goes off in my head i'm like pay attention to everything a little closer now you know as soon as i as soon as i see that but yeah leaving that kind of stuff in is good and you know like 
bloopers and you know shit like that like that's funny and that's thinking back to like when i was younger even now dude i mean there's bands that i'm like still like a fanboy for you know like i, I don't give a shit <laughs> like i love these bands it's fun you know you see those things where these people like you know make mistakes or like goofing off and that is something that honestly i think almost as much if not more than the music itself um attaches someone to that band or individual you know it's something that gives the human element and something to relate to you know because a lot of people can't relate to someone who's just like a godlike player you know that's really cool and like admirable but as far as like oh like dude that's happened to me i snapped my string and like yelled you know that kind of stuff's cool well i think it makes people feel also like maybe something at that level is attainable like it's possible on this earth or something and maybe they might be able to do that someday yeah it kind of, it kind of pulls the curtain back and I think that's good, you know? I think that's a good thing, and I hope I hope that doesn't go away. There was even a, a gig that I went to with my sugar, and the bass player plays the, starts playing the wrong song. Not that you could tell, but they just stopped kind of like 20 seconds into the song, and then awkwardly Jens goes, it's not that one. <laughs> that's awesome man that's cool i i like that that's and you know what's cool man a band like that is you know here's this giant band and they um you know do the cardinal like cardinal sin is uh stopping a song you know you're not supposed to do that and they do it and then it's like it becomes funny and the whole audience i'm sure who was there loved that i'm sure everyone thought that was cool I think everyone in the band probably hated themselves for the entirety of the gig, but <laughs> <laughs> but the audience yeah. probably thought, oh, they're actually human, which is cool. Yeah. Oh, I mean, dude, mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I've been on stage and like really blown it, like really, really, really bad. The the entirety of the gig after that, yeah, I was probably the entire after the gig too. I was probably upset. I I know I was. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, it's different for like the the audience member or an actual you know the artist. I think it's like funnier for the audience and for the artist. They're like, I'm drinking tonight. <laughs> or something you know like one of those things where they're just like i can't believe that what's the worst you've blown it the one that comes to mind for sure is uh we were playing a in denver the marquee theater i don't know if you've been there it's like kind of a kind of a small smaller club cool spot i had to throw up and we just started it was like it wasn't you know a couple songs in or anything it was right at the beginning um, <laughs> first song about 10 15 yeah i know i didn't even get a chance to like prove myself i just like shit the bed right away you know so <laughs> we hopefully we came back and killed it but i had like had to run off stage and at that time rings was um a three-piece and so there were like you know the other guitar player was a backtrack so it was just me up there playing all the solos and shit you know so it's like I'm, I'm the dude so if I'm not playing and something else is coming that you know looks horrible because there's going to be you know like guitar left backing and so I had to hit the space bar run off stage come back I, did, I could, couldn't tell the dudes it was just like I had to puke right now and I came back out and it was probably the most awkward situation maybe ever everyone was just looking at me band members included like what happened you know <laughs> it just made us look like idiots and stand on stage by ourselves for like 45 seconds while you're just wherever sounds like a long 45 seconds oh god yeah i know and i don't think there was any banter i don't i don't remember hearing like you know anyone saying anything into the microphone like hey you know whatever it was just like standing there 
<laughs> there was like there was no recovery attempt. It was it. It was just sounds like altitude sickness. Yeah, something. Yeah, probably something like that. I don't know. I get, I've had maybe I took vitamins and didn't eat. I don't know. I have a sensitive stomach like that. If I if I take a vitamin on an empty stomach, I will throw up. It's ridiculous. Ugh. Yeah, same. That type of scenario on stage is so uncomfortable. Where there's something happens and there's just silence. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The, the silence is the worst, man. There needs to be a swift and successful recovery for that to happen. There, there was actually one other time I want to mention this because this was, I think, this one was worse because it was, you know, like 100% my fault. Running, you know, in your live session when you have, you know, like 808s going out, if you have like, uh, you know, synth backings, like vocal harmonies, whatever. I had everything where it was all going out at one time, and I would put a loop region there. So I could just, it would just be sending to front of house and we get the line check and it's like, yeah, all, all, you know, five lines or whatever are working. So get that done. Go back to the beginning of the session for the set we're playing. I didn't turn the loop region off. (laughs) So we get to that part in the song and it's not even like on beat or anything. Like it's just like this random spot I selected and it is just is the metronome in our ears and we're like, that's weird. And it's like, this isn't going away. And we're hearing like the same, like, it's like 808, 808, 808, 808 <laughs> over again. And it was like, oh my God, this is so bad. And we just suffered through the rest of the song, which was not like close to being over, by the way. It was like, you know, we had a considerable amount of time left to stand up there and do our thing. And you can see the audience just slowly getting stiff, crossing their arms, people leaning over to their buddy and like, cupping their ear to say something and it was like we are so fucked right now this is the most embarrassing moment of my life <laughs> i had two of those uh what, what, what were they well one was a backing track issue like that uh it was on Ozfest actually and uh it was a song that's like a symphonic death metal song with like a full orchestra and all kinds of time changes and tempo changes and i don't know what happened like, I still don't know. I feel like our drummer got off somewhere, like he lost his place in the song. And so then the question is, what do you follow? You follow the tracks or do you follow the drummer? <laughs> so follow the drummer, but those tracks are super complex. So it just sounded like fucking noise. And then we didn't know if like we were going to end and the tracks are just going to keep going or what and it was in front of 15,000 people oh my god this was it like a festival <laughs> it sucked it was yeah it was third song of a set on Ozfest it was shitty I mean we recovered but man it was like the longest three minutes of my life and then another one was kind of similar so we were doing the MIDI switching thing before the technology was good so now the technology is good that shit just yeah. works but when we were doing it we had like these TC electronic units that sometimes listened to the MIDI CC commands, but other times they didn't. <laughs> and then sometimes the TC electronics unit would reset to like its, I guess, default state, which is just this clean tone, but not like clean, like a clean amp. It was like just this DI tone. <laughs> and so we we're playing death metal and then it's supposed to switch to like some to like a lead tone or something and then both our guitars just switch to this like stupid ass clean di signal and 
because of the way this was built, there was no like escape button or like emergency oh, no. out. No way to stop it. Like you just had to like stay in it until the end of the song. So fucking weird. And it was one of those tours where like we we're playing with bands that were nothing like us, like the Acacia Strain and stuff. So where these hardcore people would just stare and hate. And hate, and hate. Oh. is so terrible. Just stare and hate, dude. I, dude, that's stare I and hate. Yeah, that's a real feeling, man. When you're trying to sell yourself on a, on a tour that you're not already like, you know, super fitting for. You're like, everything's got to go right. I already know I'm gonna go up there, and people are gonna hate this. We gotta just do our best. And then something like that happens. Oh my god. Oh, dude, that's so uncomfortable. It's you get like your knees get shaky. You fucking like you're falling apart. Like your body's like slowly like shutting down when you're in a situation like it that. It gives me anxiety just thinking about it now. <laughs> and that shit happened like 13 years ago. Oh, or my something, God. Or more. I can't believe that, dude. That's that is horrible. Back with the first one, though, dude, I always I don't have anyone in my ears. It's always like just I have like the track, you know, like the song and then a metronome on the other side. And then on that side, I have my guitar. I don't want to hear anything. And I always follow the click. You know, that's that's always my default when you're like, follow the drummer, follow the click. I immediately was like, follow the click. You know, I think if we had that, that would have been easier. But this was pre that being normal. The Ozfest one was 2007 and it wasn't normal for like smaller metal bands to have like in-ear rigs with all that stuff that happened later so we were just dealing with the monitors and the monitor guy and uh oh dude, so there yeah. was no way to figure out what to lock into or know what the fuck is going on i think if we had ears it would be a lot easier to just know <laughs> what the fuck's going on yeah that's that's terrifying dude that's a really that's a really scary situation <laughs> in front of so many people dude. I'm, I'm like i'm i'm hurting for you that hurts me <laughs> it's like knowing how that would feel at least back then it was a lot easier when it came to rigs like now everyone has everything hooked up to a laptop like axe effects fucking patch changes fucking all the samples the click track everything if that laptop goes or the axe effects goes everyone's kind of kind of fucked <laughs> Want to know yeah. something nuts, man? Um, in all those years of touring with a laptop, uh, we were running our show off a digital performer. Um, it never fucked up once. It, so I don't, my experience with that is that it's not scary, but I also didn't stupidly run live samples or, you know. I, that yeah. to me feels like gambling. Yeah, where you, well, dude, I mean, there's things that can go wrong. And I know bands, for example, have, they'll have like multiple Axe Effects and stuff like that. Like, I use an Axe Effects. If that goes, I, I don't know. But that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, same thing with like the laptop with the tracks and stuff, you know, it's, it's tough. And like you were saying with the monitors, were what you had to, um, try to follow like in a situation like that you can't follow like tracks you know there's too much like washing in and out you know one hard symbol hit like on your side of the stage is going to just like what monitor you know that kind of thing um so you follow but I the drum bands will they daisy chain computers the like the bigger artists who do run things with a live session like that yeah dual redundancy systems 
Yeah, they're running like multiple systems, and if one fails, the other one immediately picks up in the exact same spot. I don't even know how to do like. Do but if that. the drummer is off, none of that matters. <laughs> none of <it> matters. <laughs> uh, yeah, if the drummer, yeah, if the drummer's off, it's all over. But just saying with like what you were saying with. <laughs> yeah, it's just like we've been we've been touring with the same laptop since 2010. It's an old MacBook, and it still works, and we still use it, and it hasn't broken i feel like the secret to that is to have the most minimal session you possibly can yeah exactly yeah well it depends what people run too like um i know people who have used like pro tools for their live session and dude that shit eats up so much cpu like pro tools is scary man terrifying you know pro tools is my daw in the studio that i'm the most familiar with and but i know like five different daws and I think they're all great, whatever. I'm not saying which one is better than the other. I think they're all great. But Pro Tools is not that stable. It's just not. Anyone who uses Pro Tools knows that it's not stable. And running a live show off of Pro Tools without a redundant system seems like the scariest shit because it just likes to stop. Same with Logic. Yeah, it just does. Yeah, well, dude, if you ever look at the CPU usage when you have Pro Tools open, I've seen computers that are, like, pretty beefy, and it's, like, 80%. You know, it's, like, there's, like, spikes where it's just, like, all the way up. With, like, I use Reaper, for example. I think I get maxed out with an entire session or, like, tracking, like, recording something, maybe 10%. It's beautiful. You know? Yeah, that's great. Using Pro Tools in a live situation, I can't even. No. It's so scary. Like, I know a lot of people use Ableton because it just works. Um, but I can't even fathom why anyone would put that level of pressure on themselves in a live situation. It's already stressful with a laptop alone. And, you know, if your Axe breaks and you don't have an amp, that's the beauty of using amps. It's just the fact that it's either going to be a tube or a fuse. But with I, I wouldn't know what to do. I literally wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, I would I would panic. That'd be terrifying. I actually there's another time, speaking of Ozfest, that was a, a really compromising situation for myself. Was uh we were about to start the set and I had no signal. I was like, why? My axe effects is on, I'm getting input, everything's working, I don't understand, and we ended up having to was it on Ozfest? Yeah, we played one of the dates um locally here and then we started a like started a tour i think the next day so it was like we just got to do one of the dates we weren't actually booked for the tour because it was they were like at the same time i don't even know if we would have got on that tour either way but point b we're playing you know one of the shows there and there's you know a good amount of people in the crowd I don't, I don't even know how many but it was you know definitely sizable and this whole thing goes takes like 10 15 minutes we have to cut a bunch of songs from our set and i realized that my value knob on my axe effects got turned one over and i was on a blank preset <laughs> so the whole thing could have been avoided just by looking at the screen dude i was too flustered to even think like yeah that that makes that's like the simplest problem it's like foot level there's crew walking around on stage someone totally bumped it i didn't even think about that and then just looked like a real idiot what is the blank preset on an axe effects oh just like an empty patch so if you have you know say you have does it sound like anything nope completely silent so at least it's not a stupid fucking di <laughs> yeah at least it's not a di dude yeah and that would have been unfortunate man playing like ring stuff with di playing breakdowns with Ugh. di tone jeez that sounds horrific yeah it sounds really bad yeah or just like a bunch of ripping stuff where your pick attacks not like very high in the first place <laughs> it's just like the whole thing is like set to fail you know so something interesting that you just said about your ozfest experience and i think that this is uh 
important for anybody who's not in a touring band who wants to get to that level. So something that we always knew before OzFest, but OzFest like hammered it in was your stage time, your set time is a fixed quantity. Like it doesn't move. If you're going on at 4.30 p.m., that means 4.30. And if you go on at 4.32, that means that your set is now 18 minutes long as opposed to 20 minutes long. If you go on at 4.35, it means your set is 15 minutes long instead of 20 minutes long. Local bands, I think, don't understand how that works. And so they're notorious for taking too long to set up, play too long. I think that that's one of the best things that a band that's trying to come up can get together because bands above you in the lineup will notice if you have your shit together with that. Yeah. A lot of that stuff I see as well um, almost comes down to the the strategy of load on, load off. You know, there's like ways to do it that are much more efficient. You know, like if you're standing on stage wrapping your cables or if you're tearing down your drum set on stage, it's like, dude, what are you doing? You know, it's like, it's like, it's like learning. It's a task. You're like tasking, dude. If you have a job somewhere and you're like, putting boxes together or something and you're just doing them in the wrong order you know it's going to take way longer and if you get that order down it's going to take a lot less time and in this situation earn you significantly more respect instead of hate (laughs) you know i think that there should be definitely a laid out strategy and tactics for setup so that it can be as efficient as possible and then tear down should just be Get everything the fuck off the stage immediately and out of the way, like as quickly as possible. Let nothing get in your way. Yeah. Package your items later. What about you, Brown? When did you learn that lesson? Have I learned it? That's the real question. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you have. I have to a degree. Yeah. I mean, I guess it just, there's only a certain amount where you can not wrap cables on stage. You know, you have to do some of it. Like if you're using in-ears and you've got a big ass snake going to the monitor guy then you and it's running across to the other side of the stage you need to still get that out of the way so that's got to be taken care of yeah but there's wrapping and then there's wrapping yeah this right? is like collecting yeah. you can do the quick wrap and get it off stage or you can do like the meticulous i'm in the studio trying to get not get fired wrap which you don't don't need to do on stage. No, of course then I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but most of the time, um, it'd just be wheeling everything off as quickly off stage as possible. How, making sure your shit's set up in a way where you can do that. Like imagine you've got six pedals. If you've got six pedals at the front of the stage and you don't have a pedal board and you have to set that shit up, that's just not good. <laughs> so that's why, you know, most of the time I'll just have a head, a rat case. And I mean, up until... A couple of years ago, I didn't even have a floorboard because all the patch changes were done on a laptop. So I would literally just wheel it all off in one go. That's awesome. I don't trust myself with the pedal board. I grew up in the age of uh, like patch changes being a thing, you know, where that's just like common, you know. Yeah. And um, so I've only used like a that's MIDI so cool. Yeah, I, kind of. I mean, I look at people who use a pedal and that's like an art to me. I'm like, how do you not blow this like every time? You know, <laughs> I'll be like using a pedal I, board and I'm like, all right, time to solo. Let me switch to a clean channel. And I'm just like so unaware. And a solo comes in, you know, start a bend and it's just like deep, like, you know, clean guitar tone. I'm like, oh my God, how did I do this? You know, or just like forgetting when to change. That's, you know, 
that's a skill in itself, like learning when to practice and being comfortable with doing that where you don't have to think about it. Because when you're on stage, if you're unprepared for something, you know, that like amplifies your unpreparedness like, significantly. You know, you got even if you go on like completely prepared, you still have those nerves that mistakes will be made with. So being unfamiliar with something and then going in front of a bunch of people and doing it is just like a disaster. Man, I hated pedal boards. I remember thinking when I was working with the MIDI stuff and it was still clunky, I remember thinking, there's going to be a generation of guitar players who are just grow up with this shit being normal far <laughs> into the future. And that's so fucking cool. It's weird. Cause I know that some people will be like, Oh, they, they got it so easy, but I just think it's fucking awesome. So it's different sets of problems. Yeah. There's different set of problems, but I just think it's awesome. Someone could have grown up in that age, like that it actually happened and that pedal boards are optional at this point. I think that's great. Yeah, there's some expression stuff that's cool, you know, like Waz and, you know, whatnot. Pretty much that's the only thing. I'm saying whatnot as if there's more that I can think of, but there's not. <laughs> not. But, um, you know, like a Wah pedal, for example, um, where you could do that. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm 26 now. So I think, like, when I first started touring, I was 18 was, like, when I first went out on the tour. And I think maybe I used a pedal board for that one to switch, maybe. But right after that, like, right around when I started actually doing this, it was just like MIDI switching, man. I didn't need anything else. It was really cool, you know? It, it is nice to kind of grow up in that generation, so to speak, and have it easier, I guess. It's never easy. That's the thing. I just was jealous because I hated pedal boards because of the dancing. I'd like to elaborate on this. I don't actually have a pedal board. I have a pedal to switch patches, and everything is controlled via MIDI. No. <laughs> well, so I had a, what's it called? The ground control? Yeah, yeah, the Voodoo GCX Labs. unit. So it was kind of like the futuristic version. For people who don't know, it's an analog switcher controlled by MIDI signals, I believe, or Ethernet. So it's like for actual pedals in your rack. So um, it's a way to actually use a pedal board with like real pedals. But man, I hated that shit because I guess if you are the kind of band that has like clean rhythm lead, then it's not so bad. But if you're a band that has like all kinds of shit, you're just asking for mistakes. So the age of patch signals solves that for that, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I, I can see a lot of problems happening, you know, not being familiar. That's, dude, you know, it's it's one of those things where it would almost be, you know, like you practice your set with your band or you rehearse on your own. Um, you would have like full run throughs of rehearsal for your pedal board switches. You know, if you're a band that uses a lot of stuff like that, you know, I mean, like even Interloper, um, a lot of the, the new stuff we've written for like album two. I mean, there's a lot of delays, like different tempos, like things like that. Like, I, what am I going to do? Like tap, set the tempo and then hit the delay. Like that'd be insane. You know, like I wouldn't be able to, you know, it'd be crazy. And so I mean, stuff like that, thinking about doing that strictly with a pedal board without, you know, like an automated patch change or something is unbelievable. Like uh, to, enough to where like maybe we don't play this live. Maybe there's no delay on this or maybe I just don't write stuff like that in mind for playing it live. You know, I don't know if it would be that way or if I would just like persevere through. It was that way for that kind of stuff. It was like, all right, we have this really sick a variety of delays on the record and like tremolo effects and time-based stuff. No way to number one, get those in real life on stage because, because we don't have the gear for it. And two, there's no way to program, even if we had all the pedals for it, program all of them. I mean, set all of them to be able to cover every single 
situation that comes up. So you just come up with like a general delay setting that kind of covers everything. And it's sucks in my opinion. Yeah. Well, there's so many delay situations that, for example, like dotted eighth delay where it turns into like 16th notes, that is an irreplaceable sound. And if you play those licks without that delay, it is also not as sick. It's not cool. You know, it goes from being like this beautiful, like full sounding thing to just like, like that and you're like missing the whole fucking thing you know it's like you're missing the riff because that delay is gone so absolutely man that would be that would be tough that'd be like uh i don't know it's a big sacrifice dude it's like sacrificing a child or something oh your musical (laughs) child is being sacrificed in front of a lot of people (laughs) i guess what it is i guess what it is is that the ability of the patch changes and being able to sync everything via a laptop has opened up the world of musicality for things yep. that maybe weren't possible before with guitar players that were restricted to, you know, pedals. And pedals are still cool. You know, I like playing around with guitar pedals. But at the same time, it's no, I just know that I'm never going to be able to recreate this exact same sound again. Yeah. Yeah. You're just not. Yeah. It's a nice at-home thing or like recording. You know, like I have a couple Seymour Duncan pedals that are really cool, you know, and like the, the, I have a reverb one and a delay one and, you know, they sound different than what I have in the Axe Effects and it's really cool, but you know, that live is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Simply put, so I'm not, I'm not going to take it out. It's just, I'm not going to bring it. I'm already like pained enough having to plug in my fucking tuner. Like, <laughs> I don't want to deal with like a strip of things. I don't want to make a board. I don't want to do any of it screw it you know and then thinking about like okay well if it's my wireless system now i gotta like wire this to like something that's two feet in front of me like it's a whole thing you know like i don't know it's quite funny it's we've swapped the guitar players that just used to plug in front of a marshall without any pedals didn't care about feedback and it's kind of the same mentality now except it's an axe effects or a helix or a kemper it's the same mindset that guitar players just want to have the easiest possible route and then all the work's just done at home now with making sure that the patches are correct. Yeah, I mean, dude, that even that talking about having it, you know, having it easier and you know, this generation, like you didn't have to deal with these pedal boards. It's like, dude, you should look at my YouTube history when I'm learning how to set this shit up. It's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. I'm trying oh, yeah. to figure out how to se- send a MIDI signal out of Reaper. It's been like eight hours, like 30 YouTube videos. And it's like, I finally get it. And I just hit save. Cause I'm like, I don't even know what I did to get here at this point. I've hit so many buttons <laughs> and then like setting up your patches, like to do them at volume, you know, you have to, you have to take them somewhere. Cause if you're playing at like room volume, those decibel differences aren't going to be like super noticeable when you're cranked up, you know, like 90 dBs. Those those are a lot more noticeable now when there's a volume drop. So that kind of stuff, like you got to go somewhere your, where your rehearsal spot is and like really test that because you can't just, oh yeah, the output's the same on all of these. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. That means nothing, you know, because your, your signal chain's different. And so there's going to be things that are different output there. Or if you use like a super washed out tone, that just like inherently sounds quieter. You know, in my experience, those usually have to be a little louder. It's a whole thing. But that's kind of exciting. I mean, it's, it's like fun work figuring that out and you do it well. You're like, this was a job well done. I feel like I just like picked weeds out of like a giant yard and finished and it looks perfect now. You know, I don't know. It's like you built something. Yeah. It's exciting. It is very, very cool when you spent all the time programming a show, especially if it involves lights and you have like all the patch changes, all the lights, all of that. And you programmed everything. It's like, uh, it is a cool feeling. Yeah, I feel like a 
a coder or like a hacker, you know, <laughs> is cool. I've never done the lights, man. That's something I've always been interested in because, um, you know, having there's something like special about having, you know, your own LD for sure. And it can be really cool. But I see a lot of bands. Um, one I'm thinking of off the top of my head, I believe it was Between the Barry to Me. I was watching them play and they didn't have an LD side stage and they didn't have anyone up at front of house. So it was, well, I mean, they had their front house, but not like a light guy. And all of their lights were killer and just like perfect. And I was like, okay, these dudes like sat and programmed this or like hired someone to do this. And that is really cool. Cause that's a whole nother set of like MIDI switches. And I don't, I have no idea how to do that, but I would love to incorporate that, to be able to have something cool because lights going in sync with your music is such an impactful thing for a live show. Dude, you watch a band with, you know, the couple little gel lights, you know, hitting them versus someone who's got lights like spinning around, like with the song. And it's a night and day thing. They could be playing the same thing and it's just so much cooler. So that's almost like an art in itself and also a complete like mystery world to me. I'm like, I have no idea how to do this at it's, all. It's not a clue. It's pretty similar to um, MIDI CC yeah. changes. It's really, really sim similar. The one thing that always springs to mind with those setups, though, imagine striking down when you've got five minutes at OzFest. <laughs> yeah. The way that we did it was we, uh, we, built all the lights into our cabinets and stuff you still need the cables though were you on <laughs> we on stage studio doing it we had it down to a system but like everything it wasn't like the lights came out separate like if we were on stage the lights were with us because they were on everything so then it was just as simple as daisy chaining the rig and hitting play basically that's awesome i like that's that's cool and that's almost, it's like going back to the setup teardown it's like a formula one like team you know and they gotta change wheels you know that's like how it's how it probably is you know when you're on stage like getting this up getting this down it's like a well-oiled thing everyone's doing their thing at the exact right time to like get this done and that's kind of cool too another fun thing is like as stupid as it sounds and it's like weird like cable management having a nice cable management is so pleasing i mean dude my rack if, if you ever know anyone who's toured with me and we're not like or if anyone who's seen my rack they know <laughs> it's a disaster I'm, I'm just like shoving cables in and then i pull them out the next day i'm like i can't believe my cables are broken this is so weird you know? <laughs> like, like i'm surprised that it happened as i like slammed everything in pushing the case down to like lock the side and just get it out um, but dude, that's, that's a really nice feeling when it's like things are organized, you plug things in and you get into the flow of it with your group. And that's something, you know, you have to do with them. You know, that's not something you can just be like, all right, here's our game plan. Let's, uh, let's do it. You know, it's something you got to do a few times. And that, that shows when you see, um, you know, smooth, smooth setups and teardowns, you're like, oh, these people have been, you know, this isn't their first time doing this. And I can tell. Yeah. There's too many moving pieces to just go off of a game plan and nail it fast it's too many moving pieces you have got to practice it because then you start to figure out who can do what the best and the fastest and it just it all starts to reveal itself through practice yeah and there's definitely people who who can do things quicker it's weird you know it's not like oh with bozo over here it's not like that you know it's just like some people are like way quicker like wrapping a cable or like you know plugging things in you know like i don't know for example i have like really bad vision don't wear my glasses half the time i'm probably not the guy who should be in the back of the rack plugging things in yeah you know? like i'm gonna put it in the wrong hole for sure you know stuff like that 
But you seem technologically savvy, though. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just can't see. So it's like <laughs> if I'm in the back of a rack, you know, I've definitely plugged things in the wrong spot. I have my iPhone flashlight. I'm like all sweaty and hot, like down looking at something. I'm like I can't. I don't really think this is right. You know, and it's dark and like sometimes the like the rack units, for example, like think of like a focus right. If it's like next to an axe effects or something, I'm pretty sure that it ends up being like further in, so it's already like harder to see in the first place. So if it's like sandwiched between two things, which I guess in the first place, right there, revealing itself to be a poor placement for that. It should go somewhere <laughs> else in the rack. But you know, things like that add add into, you know, potential issues that you could have. The way that we do it and still do it is we still have a central hub for kind of everything minus amps so then it's a case of you literally just it's on the front and you plug into that so for our in-ears we have like an in-ear split system and we just at the beginning of the gig obviously it's different if it's a um you know like a festival gig but we just swap out the main sort of plug-in unit for everything in our rack so then everyone will just plug into the front of our split just to make the whole night a lot easier. And then you don't have to think about it. It's already done. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. <laughs> it sucks when there's another band with a split. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, man. And I mean, there's always going to be things that you have to plug in and unplug. But generally, you know, something I've done to try to avoid that is leaving everything plugged. Hence, I was saying like stuffing cables into my rack because it's like I don't want to unplug this and have to like figure out this mystery tomorrow. You know, <laughs> so leave everything plugged in and then like try to wrap the cables and fit them in so you can pull them out and they're labeled. I made a mistake one time. I, I, the labels, I didn't realize that they like smudged off and I pulled everything out of the rack and I was like, nothing oh, is numbered anymore. Yeah, I was like, what are these colors? <laughs> like, I don't know what red is. What's green? You know, it's like plug it in and find out. You know, stuff like that, where it makes it a little easier, but then there's oversights like that. Like, you know, like if you like Sharpie on certain items, it doesn't matter how long it's been there, you touch it, it's going to rub off. You know, it's like one of those situations. You will only get better at that by learning the hard way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I agree. Or getting someone else to do it, a tech. And that's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> fun too. You know, you have like a, a reason why, you know, it's not like this. It's like everything was handed to you. It's kind of nice to go through like the trials and errors, hopefully without like too big of mistakes, like the DI tone in the festival. But, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, just like little mistakes that happen. It's, that's, that's how you learn and you have a reason why. Because I always find it strange when people are like, hey, you need to do this. And then you're like, okay, like how come? You know, like I'm, I'm always someone who likes to be like, you know, what what's the reason I would like to know so I, you know, have a better understanding of why I'm doing this and not just like blindly doing it. And if you don't have that, it's kind of weird, you know? Someone's like, hey, why do you do this? And you're like, I don't know. It's like the weirdest thing. I just do you know? it. So, yeah, I just do it. That's what I was told, you know? And it's not even like a following orders thing. It's just like odd. <laughs> I don't think you need to understand everything to use it. For instance, I don't understand how my car works exactly i still use it <laughs> so i feel like there's some things that that you don't need to understand in order to utilize to their full potential or utilize the way you need them but there's certain things i think when you're actually doing things like in a sequence or part of your work you should probably know why you're doing things yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I think another example would be like a plugin. You know, like how does this work? You know, it's like here's this like nice like cool looking little box that pops up in my DAW and just makes things sound cool. And I'm like, okay, I've got like two parameters to adjust, and it's like 
behind that, I don't know any. I don't have an idea. I don't even know how this like you're getting my signal from my guitar. You know, <laughs> I don't understand. It's like I know the cable's there and that's what it does, but like how I don't have a clue. You know, things like that. It's, there's a lot of stuff that I just don't have a clue, but I use on a daily basis, like an Axe Effects. Like how did someone figure that out? You know, how did someone make that? Yeah, it's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I don't even. I don't even like. It'd be cool to know, but I don't have. I don't have enough interest to like no i like to i like to enjoy the features and know how to use those but as behind the curtain i don't even want to go there i'm good well the thing is you already have what it is that you do want to learn about and that you have uh put your time into like it's you can't learn about everything yeah dude i'm like totally not one of those people i know people who just and in not like a, a know-it-all way, but just people who have like some unreasonably vast amount of information about so many different things. I'm like, how do you remember any of this? I can't remember what I did yesterday half the time, you know, like let alone like, oh yeah, you know, in 1984, this circuit board was made and this guy, did, it's like, what? How? You know, how do you know this and you understand it? I'm like, I, um, I play guitar. Thanks. Well, I think they care. That's part of it. They care about that yeah, stuff. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Because well, like in memory. the production world, I've definitely met those types that know every modification that was ever made to a classic unit and all the different variations of it and can tell you the annotated history of like every single tube microphone ever. But they're not necessarily better engineers than those who just know what's cool and how to use it. So Oh yeah. It just it just depends on what interests you some people just aren't interested in that kind of stuff in trivia basically you could even get it down to a guitar player i mean listen to oasis wonderwall probably most of the planet can sing it but then you take a guitar player that is probably the best in the world you know and hardly anyone would be able to sing the the music of that person um yeah so like just because you know more about something doesn't mean you're necessarily better at it subjective isn't it it's subjective, and then there's also the element of... Uh, do you even care? <laughs> do you even care? And yeah. lots of times I think that information is just information. How we use information is what makes all the difference. So if you have an encyclopedia of information in your head, but you use it like inefficiently or stupidly or pointlessly that's not nearly as effective as someone who has less information, but uses that information fucking great. In my opinion, dude, that's, that's extremely true. And talking about, you know, you mentioned like a different producer, someone who has like a bunch of information on all these different things. It doesn't make them better. You know, it's, um, it's like the practical application of the information that you hold, you know, are you able to like use this in a way that works well? And, you know, some people, especially like musically is the first thing I think of, who never like learned anything and just like kill it on guitar <clears throat> and writing. It's like, it's just, it's all up here. It doesn't matter what else they learned if they have it in their head. And um, then there's people who are like, I've got a bachelor degree in theory. I know what Mozart ate on his, the fifth concerto he wrote, like he had <laughs> eggs for breakfast and that influence. It's like, who fucking cares? No one cares. Like <laughs> no one cares about this at all. What can you do with this? And they're like, nothing. You know, it's like, okay, cool. So, you know, it just really depends on the person. But that's that's a really good point to bring up, man, how you use that information. But having all that information doesn't make you worse either. That's the thing. It's just information. Yeah. The only time it makes you worse is when you're an asshole about it. Yeah. When true. you're like, I know everything. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the one pitfall. What's your take on information like theory, harmony? 
as it pertains to guitar? For me, it's it's been extremely helpful because I'm able to learn things and understand what is happening. You know, I have the why, and it's um, there's more of an explanation than how it makes me feel or how it feels to play it or like a shape on the fretboard, for example. It's um, an exact reason of like this note in this key serves this purpose and this creates that sound. So it's like if I like how this bluesy thing sounds, my first thought it's um, a minor third in a major scale, it's a flat five in a minor scale or a major scale, or it's possibly like a sharp seven in a minor scale that doesn't have one. You know, it's like there's like these chromatic options that pop into my head to be like, okay, this is what's making it sound this way, process of elimination. Yep, it's that one, noted. And then I move forward, you know, things like that. Or like chord progressions, I really like, why does, you know, like a minor four to a major or excuse me, a minor one to like a major four sounds so like period show, you know, why does it have that like medieval types? Yeah. You know, it's like, I really like that sound. You know, I have a reason. It's not just like useless information where I'm like, yeah, these chords in this place, it's like, because I know that I can utilize that in other ways um, because I'm familiar. So I think it's really helpful. You know, a lot of the cooler things I've written though, or, you know, um, throw all of it out the window, frankly. And then I'm just like, all right, we just like left all of this here. Let's come back, you know, and then I go back to maybe a more structured thing. So it depends, you know, you don't want to get stuck in a box, but it is nice. Again, like you said, it doesn't hurt to know. It's about how you utilize the information. That's the common theme here, man. How how are we using this information we have? (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, I think guitar players, when it comes to theory, I don't know how you've learned it, but I've noticed that, well, for me, most certainly learning it, at the sort of infancy of my playing, I found that I would just follow shapes as opposed to actually understanding why something sounded the way it did. Like going up and down position one of a major scale or a or a mode doesn't really give you the information about what's possible tonally within that scale. And I think that, well, by the sounds of it, the way that you utilize it, it's as to sort of add to your encyclopedia of sound so you know that if you ever want to grab something that you like the sound of you know roughly where to go you know what scale you need to be in yeah dude and i mean you bring up an extremely valid point of getting stuck in the uh the shapes and stuff and this actually is kind of uh contradictory to what i said about having the information can't hurt you um in some cases i think with music theory it absolutely can and for me something i went through was not developing my ear as much as I should have you know I just like relied on like this is this and that's that and it fits in this nice little box and this fits in the key and we're we're good everyone's happy you know and I like really underdeveloped my ear and that was something that's tough and like even actively now you know try to really step away and I think like the newer things I'm writing um are definitely getting out of that box, you know, because I did learn so much theory. I mean, dude, I was like, I learned a lot <laughs> and, you know, I like got it and it, you know, did put me in a box a little bit. So having a deeper understanding is something that's important. And I guess, you know, again, how you use the information, do you take this major scale and you're like, that's all I need to know. I can run it up and down. I could do, you know, four note sequences. I could do, you know, three note sequences. I could do like, you know, ascending, descending thirds, or can I do something that's kind of creative and be like, okay, well, you know, what scale degree in this? sounds cool how do i utilize this to make this sound special you know it's uh it's tricky there's a lot to it's a, it's a giant rabbit hole and there's a lot of a lot of sticky parts that you get stuck on for sure so what did um what did you do to get outside of the box because one thing that i always tell people is to focus more on interval relationships mm, yeah that that's a good one i mean dude a big thing that i try to avoid is um like straight scale runs you know just up and down you know that's something i try to never do so i'll take maybe 
something I've been doing recently that works really well is you take five notes. So it's ba it's basically um, like a ninth chord. And so you would have, say, like your root third, fourth, fifth, and your seventh. Okay. So there's like five right there. And you would, you would sequence that up in four. So it would be like root third, fourth, fifth, and then like third, fourth, fifth, seventh, and then fourth, fifth, seventh octave, like that kind of thing. You'd do like a sequence like that. And you get these cool sounds. And say if you did that like over Lydian, you know, now you have that cool like sharp four in there. So it's like major seven sharp four. And that has a very specific sound. And looking at that, you know, which one of these modes? So Lydian's got the sharp four. That's what makes it sound kind of like oriental or spacey. And then, you know, for Mixolydian, that flat seven is what gives you that, like, the honky-tonk stuff. You know, you get that, like, real cool, like, Fleetwood Mac, like, bluesy type stuff. And it's cool. You know, just having a reason why and trying to explore with that, you know, less notes. And the last thing that I've been doing a lot is um, abandoning everything that I know and just trying to, like, play something that feels and sounds cool and then figure it out later. You know, get rid of the uh, the like box that holds you into like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I shouldn't do that. If you're thinking it doesn't make sense and ignoring how cool it sounds, you're doing it wrong. You know, there's a lot of stuff in metal that doesn't make sense. The use of chromaticism, for instance, in sick riffs yep. makes no sense musically if you try to figure it out. And I've actually know quite a few people who have basically fucked up really great riffs because of that right there for instance too many chromatic notes fucks everything up throws off the equation yeah it's a fine balance between like something pleasing and something off the wall you know when people bend up say from a from a note that's out of key to a note that's in key that can be really cool but if you do that in like three different places the impact of that is gone and now it just sounds weird yeah there's things that get tough you try to it's just like it goes from a cool riff to not a cool riff like you're saying man you overthink it or maybe you went too far one direction and there's things that could have been sick that just aren't or vice versa you know i've had some pretty uh pretty mundane plain you know very very vanilla sounding riffs and taken another stab at them and turned them into maybe something entirely different that's way sicker or there was a small change that was like that made that riff sick you know yeah Totally. It sounds to me like your use of theory helps you associate ideas with certain sounds. Is That's the impression I'm getting, that you're always relating it to real music. That's where I think a lot of people go wrong, is they don't relate it to music. They just keep it in this theoretical, abstract world. Um, I think that you kind of need to relate it to real music, whether it's stuff you're writing or really in music you love by other people it needs to be related to real life or else it really is just theory yeah get, yeah exactly man it's like the people who have like a degree in it and just like don't have a clue you know like it happens you know it's like practical application of it like it could be helpful so you're in you know your verse riff is in like a maybe your you know pre-chorus could go up to e you know and that makes sense. It's like you're changing your tonal center. That's something that's pleasing. And you hear that in music. You hear like, you know, down here, up here, or back down. You know, it's like a dynamic almost, you know, but not a volume dynamic. It's a, a tonal dynamic, you know, things like that, where it's like, that makes sense. That's reasonable. And that is something that is practical and common. Something else you said, you said that you wish that you had worked on your ear more at the beginning. So just out of curiosity, say that you went back in time. And you had the opportunity to work on your ear more at the beginning. What would you have done? Not looked at tabs. 
Ah, figure shit out by ear. Okay. Yeah, like my my ear is is weak in that sense. You know, it's it's not horrible now, but it's I mean, it's not great. You know, it's definitely like a a thing I have an issue with, like picking parts out. Um, you know, I need in some situations and some music's like really complicated and it's like yeah of course you're not going to figure this out by ear there's like you know nine instruments happening at one time good luck you know like some some stuff's reasonable to be like yeah i can't hear what exactly is happening but in other cases um you know i need like the isolated guitar you know to figure stuff out because i'm like i can't like hear what's happening and then i know other people who like no problem you know they just have it i had a teacher nick cordell that guy was insane i would like play something for him or like send him like a tune I'm working on and he would listen to it once something he's completely unfamiliar with and just play back like four bars he just like did it you know and he had this crazy teacher in college who was making him do all these you know not him but like the class it wasn't specific to him you know do these uh transcriptions into different keys with like classical music you know here's like you know an eight part piece you need to transcribe this and then like move it to another key by ear no sheet music and he could do it you know like that's crazy that's something that i wish i developed so i'd probably get rid of the tabs and spend more time not thinking about what i'm playing and just try to feel something you know like my bends and vibrato developed way later in time you know i got i got good at those probably like two or three years probably like three years ago where that was something i really you know spent a lot of time doing and i'm I'm okay that that happened now but it's the bigger things you know developing an ear that's not something you can just practice um and get better immediately you know it's something you see an improvement over a period of you know long period of time i agree yeah you know it's not like technical playing you know that was what i focused on anyone can sit down and play with a metronome and get their technique down and you can see improvement you know pretty frequently with other things like your bends and vibrato or like your ear training you know your ability to like dictate things that takes a long time the interval training i think is potentially the most important part of learning to be a musician, something that I still suck at. Um, I've definitely gone better at it over the years, but even just understanding the intervals, it tells you all the information that you need. It tells you what key a piece of music is in, if there's any passing notes within that key um, that's happening, like weirdisms, like chromaticism in metal. Um, it's uh, And the fact if you can pick all that out, then you've already learn everything you need to learn (laughs) brown how do you go about learning it like how would you suggest someone went about learning their intervals better i think the best thing is to associate it with music that you're familiar with like say you find a chord sequence that you really really love and then learn it and then work out what it is um from a theoretical approach um when i say theoretical approach like work out what key it's in what the movement of the chords are doing. Is it root note? Is it to your fifth? Is it your fourth? Maybe it's a flat seventh and work it all out. Cause then at that point, it's kind of like added to your dictionary. You know, that if you do this, then this is possible. And you're just constantly adding to your own personal dictionary almost with uh, learning all these different sounds. But if you know the intervals, then you can work the rest out. Like, you know, if someone says to you, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know that you're in the major key. And then you can work out everything else from there once you know all the interval names. It's kind of, you know, you see it all the time in, you know, these these jam players, they say, oh, play in a C major scale, but flatten the six. Then you would automatically know what to do in that situation if you knew the intervals. Where I think that the part with your ear that's really important is, like you said, associating it to real music. Yeah, it, everything has to associate to real music. Otherwise, it's just notes, isn't it? 
Like there's no emotion to those notes. It's just 12 notes. <laughs> yeah. And it becomes trivial as well. I mean, associating it to music with the intervals, for example, thinking like a minor third down, Hey Jude by the Beatles. If you think of like a major six, that's um like NBC, you know, that little three note jingle they have. And then like a perfect fourth, for example, is like, here comes the bride, you know, things that are like relatable where you can hear that and be like, Oh, that's that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So how do you go about letting all that go when you're right? Just using your ear and trying to write something that sounds cool and generally things that sound really cool. The more time that passes, the more I realize that they um, there's generally chromaticism involved because that's what sounds interesting, you know. And there's things that are really nice and like triumphant and powerful that fit very much in key, which I definitely do a lot of. But a lot of the things that if something catches my ear more often than not, there's something like unusual happening is what I notice. And so trying to do that and just, you know, I have a key that I'm in. I don't just like let go of everything entirely. You know, it's like, okay, I'm like in E. So that's kind of my home base. So travel, travel as you please. And just try to make it back is try how I try to approach that. So if there's chords that are out of key or something that sounds cool, it's like, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a borrowed chord, you know, it's not in the key. Find your way back, make it sound cool. And that's all that matters. So that's how I that's how I try to approach it. You know, it's not a complete just like yeah, I know nothing. I can I can forget all of this and turn this off in my brain. Something I've known for like fifteen years. You know, like you can't do that. It's impossible. <laughs> so you just try to try your best to not um, worry about it. Yeah, I feel like uh, too many people worry about it when they're writing, as opposed to just writing. Yep, that's I, that's a huge issue I have when I write. If I'm thinking about something too much. Or if something's taking a long time to write or work on, there's usually a problem. A lot of the cooler stuff that I've written and tunes that I, you know, really like happened uh, pretty quick. And I noticed that with, for example, like Andrew in, in our band, he writes so fast. It is unbelievable. Like it is ridiculous. Honestly, it's like shocking. Something he does is he doesn't question anything. He just does it keeps going and you know what he does if he doesn't like an idea have you ever been tracking something you're like i'll save this for later you highlight the section drag it over in your daw if you're dragging something over to maybe use later fucking delete it hey i'm with that i know brown isn't but i'm with that nope brown's shaking his head yeah my yeah my daw is full of like my sessions are full of stuff like that and i notice unless it's something that's really really good and just simply doesn't fit in this tune um, you know, I'll drag stuff like that over, but if it's not super sick and it's not fitting in the tune, forget about it or maybe drag it over temporarily. And then, you know, it's like the recycle bin. It, de it deletes the next day. You know, I have to go in and delete it. I actually label all of them separately. So if something's really shit, normally I color it in red. If something's like, eh, it's all right, or maybe it's not got anywhere to fit, then I'll do it in yellow. And if it's really sick, then it's in green. And then any of the colors available are usually for completed songs. I might try that, man. That's really cool. That's really cool. I do like the marker thing, but the markers don't move with the regions. That's an awesome idea. I'm so taking that. It's just a visual. So say you've got a song, right? And you're like, fuck, I need a riff. Then it just gives you a quick indication of like, oh, I should go there to the green ones first. All right, cool. And then the yellow ones. It's not that I'm hoping that I'm just going to copy and paste this one section and that a miracle is going to happen. But quite often we forget about what we've written. Sometimes we forget about cool things 
that we've written. I've definitely, that's definitely happened to me. I found a couple of riffs recently that I submitted for a series that was on television that never materialized. And I found a song, completely forgot about it. And I listened to it again. I was like, fuck, this is really, really sick. I could actually use this. Now, I wouldn't have that opportunity if I'd fucking deleted it. Would I? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I just think that deleting it, it could be like, it could inspire something from hearing three notes in a different point in your life. Yeah, that's I, I think there's a balance, though, too, as well. There is. I definitely still delete shit. I'm not saying I don't delete anything. Yeah, because at some point it becomes hoarding. I'm just going to save this for later. I'm going to need this one day. And then you then you got to like carve paths through your room to just go shit in the corner. I have a box obsession. I can't throw away boxes. I have <laughs> so many fucking boxes. To just throw them away. It feels good. It does until you realize that when you were a kid and you threw away the box to like your games consoles and all those games that are now worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> I think that's probably where it came from, actually, why I stopped throwing boxes away, because I realized, oh, you know, that one time. <laughs> that one time. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I'm I'm totally with you on that. I have, I'm, I'm like in the middle of both of these ideas and perspectives on that. I definitely have like a hoarding problem, but it's like managed well. <laughs> I don't want to get rid of stuff, but I re- I'm like very meticulous about it. I'm like, I might need this. But the problem I have is like when I do stuff like that, I uh, generally forget that I have it. And when I need it, I have no fucking clue where it is. So it's like, and then I find it when I don't need it. And I'm like, that's ah, the okay, problem. I'll put it back. You mean like the yeah, headphones? Yeah, that's what I have the issue with. <laughs> but Brown, your labeling system actually for musical hoarding your labeling system actually kind of solves the problem he was just saying of when you need something, you can't find it, and then you find it when you don't need it. Well, with the green, yellow, red system, that kind of eliminates that, I think. Yeah, I'm not saying that everything's labeled perfectly like that, but some, you know, a lot of it is. I just find that it was like, if I'm in, you know, if I'm in album writing zone, I tend to write it all in one project. And at that point, it solves the problem. That's really, I'm definitely going to do that. Glad to inspire you, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm going to do that because, dude, I mean, you look at like a giant session and, for example, like in Reaper, which is a very unpleasant DAW to look at. You know, it's just very, uh, it's very like Windows 2000, you know, esque. It's just plain, you know, which is fine. But having that color system would be helpful because if you have a bunch of regions somewhere and if, like, say you put a marker, but like you keep, your session keeps getting longer, you know, shit's getting pushed. And, you know, a lot of times you forget to move the markers and it's like, okay, let's have a marker here. There's nothing there. Like, okay, fuck it. I'll delete it. If you have those colors, dude, you're going to be able to find stuff because it's not just like a sea of like audio regions that are all the same color. Exactly. That's the main reason. That's brilliant. Did you, did you come up with that or was that like, did you see someone else do that? I can't remember. It's been, I've been doing it for so long. Like it might've been Ackle from Tesseract maybe did it, but I think he just colored it in for different parts as opposed to it being a labeling system for whether it was good or bad. I don't know, but I'll ask him one day. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome, man. That is, that is one of the coolest things I've heard for, you know, people who hoard riffs, you know, (laughs) I definitely, yeah. Cause dude, I mean, I have so many sessions. It's like, which one is it in? And then I go in and it's like, there's so many parts here. Like I don't even fuck it. I'm not going to look for it. You know, that's what happens. Exactly. And yeah, if you just go into your session, you have like all the, you know, the fat that's over here, you know, the stuff that didn't make it into like the tune that, you know, that session is for problem solved. 
I'm like so excited. I want to go like label my stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like that cathartic like organization when you organize everything. It's all perfect. Except this isn't going to get screwed up. You know, it's not like a filing system I have where I have like all these papers in one spot and then I'm going to move them one day. You know, these colors to are another there. spot. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to move them to another spot and put more shit in that place. I'm going to forget about the stuff I moved and everything's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that before. Yeah. I like, you're like, dude, a perfect example. The beginning of this podcast, my headphones, I've had them in that iPhone case forever. I think maybe I used them once. Clearly I did because they're not there anymore. Not a clue. You know, you would think I would put them in this nicely organized storage bin right here where I have everything organized in bins for like different audio equipment. But of course not, not a clue. I don't know where they are. They're probably gone. <laughs> you know, I've imposed that sort of thing on myself in recent years. Like, stuff goes exactly the same place every time. And what I've noticed is any time that I let myself slip on that, like I'll just put my keys over here <laughs> this one time. That one time is the time that I don't remember where my keys were. But the amount of times that I lose anything now is very, very, very sparse compared to how often I used to lose shit before because everything goes where it belongs. And uh, I think that operating like that musically is also a good thing for the most part, as long as you're still being creative, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You spend more time organizing your DAW than writing. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just a simple red, yellow, green mark. It takes two seconds. That's great. Yeah. But like, even if you just take that, I mean, I understand why maybe people wouldn't do it because it is difficult to stay organized in life. <laughs> you know, it's it's not it's not easy. Yeah. Or dude, think about like your computer organization. Like my hard drive, I try to keep things every organized and nice and labeled and there's, you know, there's more times than I would like to say where I can't fucking find something. And I'm like, how can I not find this? What band is it for? Is it for interloper? Is it for this? Is it for that? Okay, look in that folder. Okay, what was it? A guest solo? Okay, look in the guest solos. It's like, where is this? You know, it's like you have this like perfect system you start out with. You're like, I'm going to adhere to this. It's like a New Year's resolution. And then like every month you're just like saying, fuck it more and more. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can't find anything. That's like, that's a big pitfall I have. So I try to stay really organized because sometimes as goofy as it is, like, exporting something and then like oh, I gotta go look for the place I want to export it's like I'll just export it to my desktop and do it later it's a bad idea you're never gonna do it later yeah you're never gonna do it later ever it's not gonna happen and you're not gonna know where it is and then you're gonna look on your desktop with 50 different icons and be like ah whatever <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely 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 guilty of that I think everyone is to a degree like you know when you label one of your mp3 files like final 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 definitely final mix this time for real for real <laughs> this time for real <laughs> and so that same thing i noticed when um you probably had this happen too both of you like when you start touring you're like yeah i'll just put this here i'll put this here like you see someone use like when they go to a hotel room and they use like the drawers and stuff it's like are you out of your fucking mind are you trying to lose all of your things you know? <laughs> so like you know you get on tour and you're like i'm gonna put you know this cell phone charger here i'm gonna set my backpack here i'm gonna put this pair of jeans right here it's like no put everything in the same spot and you will not lose anything ever again as soon as you deviate from that it's over like it's so bad it's so difficult not to lose shit on tour as well because obviously every single day you're in a yeah. different venue you're in a different spot and things are in different places like the amount of towels that i have lost over the years is just crazy i remember losing my best pair of swim shorts 
because I took a shower with them once because it was all open. That's all the more reason, I think, to have as buttoned down of a routine as possible with this stuff so that even if you're in a different environment, like charger always goes here. <laughs> bag yeah. always My goes bag here. organized like, <laughs> like that too. This pocket of the bag always takes this thing or whatever. Passport stays with tour manager. Yeah. And like the same thing. I lost a bunch of pillows. You know, like you're talking about towels. I've had people mail, mail me pillows because at a point, like I was putting things in my pillow. I had like a backup pair of jeans and stuff. It was ridiculous. And I would like stay somewhere. You know, they'd be like, oh, yo, come to our house and like, you know, hang out at a party for the night. I'm like, okay, I bring my pillow in. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> Huge. Yeah. Man, human memory is a super fallible thing. We need habits and routines. Yeah. They make a huge, huge difference. And uh, just like in an audio sense, I think that it's the equivalent of using shortcuts and macros and stuff is uh, putting stuff in the same place every time. Because if you do that and then you don't have to think about it, your brain is free to think about other things. And same like when you're using shortcuts and macros, like you're not spending that time going to the menu, finding the thing, clicking on it. Shit just happens faster. You have more time to be creative. I think it has the exact same effect on your life. It allows you to do other things. And rather than spend 15 minutes looking for something, and then the next day, 15 minutes looking for another thing, and then the next day, 15 other minutes, and then over and over and over. Yep. Absolutely, dude. That's that's how it is. And I mean, on, on tour as well, you know, if you, if you like to drink, you need that system. You will lose all of your things, you know, <laughs> like it's you have to put them in the same spot. Like, I've left guitars at venues like I've done that, you know, like it's ridiculous. You know, this is like I set it somewhere different. It wasn't with the rest of my gear. I remember looking at it when I left the venue and I was like, I'll go back and get that. Just like left it. We got a phone call later and one of the dudes on in one of the other bands on the package was like hey man did you leave a guitar at the venue and i was like oh my fucking god yes and he's like i grabbed it for you <laughs> i was like dude thank you so much <laughs> but yeah you just like you need those things and if you're gonna have anything that like deviates from the normal night you know maybe it's a saturday night you got sunday off you guys want to go out and hit the bars after the show or something like your system needs to be down. You need to be packed, like loaded out. All your shit's in the same spot, whether you're in a bunk or van or wherever. Like your stuff just goes in the same spot every time. You're like you have to do it that way. I see people on tours, like especially like newer bands, and they're just like losing shit constantly. I'm like, dude, you have not figured it out yet. <laughs> you're doing this all wrong. This is going to be misery until you figure it out. It is, is there anything with your guitar playing that is like that, that you like do every time? Or like if you've taken a break, and you need to get your skills back up that you know you just do like something like some sort of routine or technique or something that kind of like it's like a north star i guess or brings you back to center generally like with guitar if i've taken time off and i'm you know noticeably rusty i will uh do a lot of like inside picking outside picking specific exercises um because those are you know your string changes are where a lot of the problems are and then um, the other thing I'll drill is like single string, just like, you know, alternate picking stuff. Cause the next thing that falters is your ability to play with very little tension, you know, at least for me, you know, some people it's probably totally different, but for me, that's like one of the first things to go is my, um, my like being relaxed. And so I work on things for that inside picking, outside picking, and just a metronome pretty much. I won't like play through tunes or anything 
because those techniques are something I need to like address before I go back into it, you know? Inside picking and outside picking. No one has said that yet. Oh, dude. So inside picking and outside picking is probably the, the understanding that is probably like the most important thing for a picking hand that like anyone could have. Um, so when you play guitar, like you, you change a string and that is going to be more often than not where the noise happens. If you're playing on a single string and noise is happening, there's like a whole, you got to reevaluate some stuff, you know? And so when you're changing a string, that's going to be like your pick direction. So basically you could be doing, say if you're going from your A string to your D string, right? So if you're doing three notes per string, down, up, down, up, that downstroke on the A string but when you go to the D string, it's an upstroke. You are picking on the outside of those two mm-hmm. strings. That is one possible way to change a string. Say if you do that in reverse and doing three notes per string, going from the D string to the A string, down, up, down, string change, up. That string change is going in between the D string and the A string. So that is inside picking. And that is one of the directions. So now you could do inside and outside, and then there's two directions for each. You can do outside down to up, outside up to down say you have you know three notes on your d string and you start with an upstroke for whatever reason up down up over to a down on the a that would be like the opposite way you could do outside picking so those address um all the different string changes you can make string to string it doesn't matter what you're doing there is never going to be another type of string change in if you're doing alternate picking if you're doing economy different ball game but if you're alternate picking there's only four ways you'll ever change a string and working on exercises that specifically like exploit those motions is extremely important because that carries over to everything you do makes sense dean lamb was talking a lot about that as well he's uh he's big into the inside and outside picking yeah yeah it's it's really important it's super simple it seems like you hear that and you're like oh god it's like some new technique it's just it's an explanation of the way you make string changes like is that you know if there's been a time where you're playing a riff and you're like dude i am having the hardest time with this string change right here or like this part like there's a problem and if it's not you know maybe a super strange fingering you know if it's something with your picking hand you're like i am blowing this note every time you can look at that and see oh okay that's an inside stroke here let me work on this exercise that does that same exact motion in a different scenario and then come back to this so do you feel like uh most of your problems as a guitar player come down to right hand stuff and that's why you're drilling right hand stuff i lefty so like left hand for me yeah i'd say so you know that's that's definitely the biggest thing that goes i mean my fretting hand will be messy sometimes if i've taken time off but that's generally not the issue you know it's more often than not going to be my picking hand um, it's the first thing to go when I take time off and it's the source of my tension in playing, you know, so I need to be locked in with that to be able to be relaxed and I need to be relaxed to be able to play the shit that I play. So it's like, I have to do that. How do you focus on playing relaxed, especially when you're playing ridiculous shit? Like how do you keep from tensing up or yeah, where does that come from? You have to be playing a lot, man. You have to be really comfortable with your instrument um, and not playing a lot isn't like, yeah, I've been playing for 10 years, but like you really have to be on your game, you know, where you're you know, playing every day for a few hours and like you're just like locked in. Like an athlete. Um, that's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like step number one. And then like an athlete as well, uh, you need to be warmed up, you know, unless it's like a really hot summer day, which is one reason I love, love like summer tours and stuff. Dude, the warm up is so easy. God, it takes a couple minutes. You know, like I used to like smoke cigarettes and stuff. You have to like go outside and smoke, you know, if you're playing like Vermont in December (laughs) 
forget your warm up. What warm up? Warm up who, dude? It's gone. You know, you can't like go out and do anything. It's like it's a sensitive thing for me being warmed up. And so I have to be warmed up to be able to play that kind of stuff. And then getting to that point of being able to be relaxed, it took a lot of time, um, a lot of like looking in the mirror um, while I'm playing guitar. So I would be able to watch my, you know, picking hand and arm, you know, because a lot of the tension comes from um, the inside of your your forearm, you know, kind of by your elbow and really working on just keeping that super relaxed and going slow and building up with a metronome. That was a that was a big thing was just practicing slow and not painfully slow, but comfortably slow. And yeah, that's that's really what it comes down to. And just, you know, these motions, you know, if you're getting tension on like an inside stroke because you're like jerking like down to upstroke right there um, to get that string change, you need to look at like maybe I'm placing my hand wrong here. Where is my wrist placement? Am I using maybe my thumb and my index finger to help aid in a string change, which is something I do a lot. So I don't have to move my wrist to make a string change. I pull my thumb in and that does the string change for me. So it's just a big analysis of stuff like that. And another thing is um, like tension in your body. You know, you're like on your toes, for example, you know, when you're sitting down and your foot goes like that, and you get on your toes, like small amounts of tension like that in different places, of your body all find their way to your hands. Interesting. No one's spoken about that either. No, sounds like there's a lot of uh, self-awareness that goes into this. Dude, yeah, it's borderline mind over matter. It's like almost there. I mean, you have to be able to like play and do these techniques. It's not like, oh, yeah, I think about it enough and I can do it. Like, It's not going to work like that. But, you know, when you're there, like being very aware of it and like, you know, breathing. When you go to play a hard lick, do you go and hold your breath? You know, you shouldn't do that stuff like that because like now you're like burning burning your oxygen and your muscles need all that to like work so yeah tons of self-awareness you know and just like uh be getting comfortable doing that where you don't have to think about those things anymore that's that's a whole thing i think that whole uh breathing exercise thing is something that guitar players generally don't think about and a lot of them probably don't even realize that they're even holding their breath on a lot of these really difficult riffs but it's kind of like patch changes on stage. You kind of have to learn when it's comfortable to do them. It's kind of like how a singer would have to if they were singing certain parts. You know, they can't just sing a part and not fucking breathe. So, yeah, it's the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, and a lot of those um those tension things happen at the same time. People will like hold their breath, lift their feet up, and like tighten their hands. You know, maybe they start fretting harder. That's another one that really slows you down. How hard are you fretting? If you're like squeezing your neck, um, everything in your hand is going to be working less because all of that like energy is being used to grip the neck and like fret really hard. You know, another same thing goes like, are you squeezing your pick? That's another huge one. If you like put your hand, you know, like as if you're holding a pick and grab your like forearm up here and then squeeze like you're holding a pick, you can feel everything tense up, you know, and that that's small amount of tension. It seems trivial, but it's really not really makes a big difference. And it's usually like you said, it all happens at once and it's not usually just your forearm it's like your forearm and your shoulder and your neck and your back yeah exactly dude and like your toes you know that's a huge thing i do that a lot so i try to like rest my foot because it's comfortable to be up there and like with my chair the the height of it no matter where i'm at it just feels more comfortable to have my leg like more securely on something like or my foot having my foot flat on the ground i don't feel secure you know granted that's like how a human stands and you probably should feel secure but when i'm playing guitar um i like to have like my heel up on something so i can like you know rest on my heel specifically it's really weird but you can't get too hung up with stuff like that you if you if you put it 
if you put your playing into this place where you're like, I need to have every single element around me perfect. It needs to be 76 degrees in my room. The fan <laughs> needs to be on the low setting. It's like, dude, you're fucking blowing it. You're gonna, like, what are you going to do on stage when you have a giant air vent in front of you that's blowing ice cold air on you? You're playing in front of people that hate you and your patch changes aren't working. You know, <laughs> you got to be able to do this in all situations. But those are things that, you know, get you to the point where you can go on stage and hopefully not blow it. That's a good way to put it. Being, though, that you do work on posture and you are so aware that just out of curiosity, does playing standing up challenge you? Yeah. The big thing is I do notice I get a little bit more tension in my my arm because it's more extended, my picking hand because it's a little more extended down. I try to play with my strap low because it looks sick. <laughs> but, you know, it's not the most ideal thing. You know, even like playing like the Beatles, like that's too high, you know, but you're trying to put on a show and look cool. So having the guitar a little low is good. So that's something I notice. And then the big thing that I notice um, that I do have an issue with is, well, not an issue with, but something I have to be aware of is when I'm playing a certain part, do I need to stand a certain way to be able to position the guitar? where I can easily access like that area of the neck because it's when you're sitting down, everything's nice and easy. You don't really have to adjust because you're in a comfortable, neutral, not moving position. And when you're standing like some of the lower notes, you know, say if you're playing like a seven, that wrist bend becomes a lot gnarlier. And say if you're really high up on the fretboard, that reach, if you're doing like an arpeggio and making your way down to the E string around like, you know, the 19th fret, that also becomes really hard to grab. So you have to stand in a certain way, at least I do, to be able to grab those notes. It's really interesting that you say you get more tension in your picking hand when you're standing up, because I find it's the opposite for me. And it just goes to prove that we're all built slightly differently. Yeah, dude. I mean, a lot of the stuff too, like technique things, there's people like when I teach, a lot of people come to me for like technique, you know, like picking hand stuff. I always say with like a grain of salt, it's like, dude, your body is different than mine. This is how it works for me. And this is like the general ballpark that you should be in. Like take this advice, work on it. And if something feels wrong after like a couple of days, make, make an adjustment, you know, it's like you're, you you do not have the same muscle structure as me. Your hand's not the same size. Your fingers aren't the same length. You might be using a different pick, you know, like all that stuff factors in. And that's interesting because like you, you saying you have less tension standing up is is wild to me because I definitely have the most tension when I'm standing up. Wild to me too, actually. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So let me explain it a little bit more. When I'm sat down, the guitar isn't positioned the same as when we, you know, when we stood up. Mine is halfway between my left and right leg. So if I put the guitar on my left leg, then my left shoulder gets tired the moment I go further up the neck. And if I put it on my right leg, then my right arm gets more tense because my arm's pushing further back than it would be when it's more in its relaxed state of standing up. So in terms of standing up for me, I feel way more relaxed in my shoulders and my arms. How do you sit and play guitar normally? Do you play with it like in a classical position? No, I don't. I find that that hurts my left arm too much. And then if I do it on my right leg, then my right arm hurts much. <laughs> Huh. So it's it's for me it's like a battle of trying to find that third leg, excuse the pun, <laughs> to sit a guitar on. Um so yeah, when when it comes to like I notice that when I'm recording an album and I'm sat down, I notice at the end of the day that usually my right arm feels more tense than it would if I was playing, you know, stood up. But then again, obviously, if I played stood up with a guitar and the weight, then my left shoulder would probably hurt from standing up that much. So it's kind of just constantly rotating between the three different ways to keep us on tense. You got it. You have to you have to hurt yourself in equal parts. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's wild, man. I don't know. I I don't know about you guys. I have um. So you mentioned posture. Like I'm aware of my posture in certain places. I am like folding in half, like the Pope, though. When I play guitar, most of the time, dude, it's like I'm curled over and I'm like turned. So I get a lot of issues with my lower back. Is what actually bothers me the most. I don't get any of those pains like in my shoulders or like you know my arms. Really, it's my back is the uh, is the big problem here. It's so difficult to pay attention to all that stuff all the time, just because we as humans just want to be in the most comfortable position possible, and that often isn't what is the best for our posture. Yeah, and I mean, a borderline. If you if you worry about all those things too much, and it's kind of like a stupid approach, thinking like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Figure it out later. You know, and later is when you have like a you know herniated disc or something but you know it's when you put all of these like worries into something it takes the fun out of it sometimes you just want to sit down not give a shit and play guitar you know and i think that's a big approach that um i've tried to take i used to play on like v guitars and stuff and it was like i could only sit here and play this like this i need a footstool like you know just like a whole array of like situational things that i need to be able to play comfortably versus you know playing like a strat type guitar or, you know like something that sits on your hip or on like your leg that made it a lot easier and it's just like i can just sit on the couch and play or whatever it's like a mental thing you know yeah but you're right though about that it's kind of dumb to not worry about it until you get a herniated disc which is a very real thing uh, speaking from experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah man yeah, I, I believe it. a lot of a lot of a lot of back problems and dude i mean with like musicians too if you don't have crew and stuff i mean you are lifting stuff and like i lift things like an idiot half the time it's like oh yeah just use your back you know like i noticed that or i turn and it's like man and, it, and it's getting worse and worse so you know that is something i try to be aware of you know especially when i'm playing it's like try to try to just sit up a little more straight dude like you're folded in half <laughs> like come on get it together and um yeah, little things like that, but I think it's your mental approach to that, like being conscious of it but not worrying about it too much. You know, same thing like I said with the, you know, the air conditioning, I need to be my chair needs to be this high. I need to have my foot stand at this exact level or I can't play. It's like, dude, just play. Come on. Yeah, just have fun. <laughs> Brown, so do you find it easier or harder to play standing up? Easier. So you would rather play standing up. Yeah, but then my legs just hate it after okay, hours good. and hours and hours, you know. So if you're tracking a record, I, I sit down for tracking a record, but I do feel it in my right hand. Um, but certain bits, I will stand up. I was going to say, why don't you just stand up? Laziness. Uh, <laughs> good reason. <laughs> if you think about it, right, I'm going to be sat there probably playing each riff a minimum of mm, 10 times, let's say. Probably more, you know, for double or quad tracking. So the last thing that I want to be doing is playing the same riff over and over, standing up for one to two hours. But I do find it more comfortable standing up because I guess I've just refined where my guitar needs to be. As you said, Miles, like uh, certain sort of areas, you kind of have to readjust your standing position in order to get to certain parts. I guess that's where the sitting down comes in. It, it, no, I know I'm going to nail it sitting down more so than standing up, even if standing up is more comfortable for me. Definitely. Do, do you play with your strap uh, higher or lower? It's kind of in the middle. It's not. It's not like... You know, I'm not trying to be Hetfield, but I'm also not trying to be the Beatles and have my arm through the V of a flying V. <laughs> yeah, dude, dude it's, you know, it's fun. I think of people who play with their guitars really high and it's almost like a, like a beginner when, you know, you see someone grab a guitar and they're like picking from like their elbows where like the strap button is. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I feel like that's how it looks like with some of the Beatles stuff, like Paul McCartney with his bass. It's like he's picking from like the bottom of the guitar it's a trip 
You know, I've wondered with like a player like Zach Wild. You know, he puts his foot up on a monitor and basically holds the guitar up almost like a classical guitar position wise when he goes to do the super fast stuff. And I don't know if it's just because it looks cool or because he does that because he that position is easier to play that stuff or both. But he holds the guitar so low that, I mean, I know that he can play it in that position because he does, but uh, it seems like it would be uncomfortable to try to play super fast stuff with the guitar that low and that it just makes sense to find a way to raise it when you're soloing. Yeah. Well, I mean, dude, a lot of players do that. I mean, I've, I've done that before where I put the guitar up on my leg with my, you know, like right foot up on the monitor, puts you in a more like neutral position. And also something that is eliminated is um, like the wiggle of the guitar. Like your guitar is now set in a position. It's not going to be like turning or anything based on your stomach. Or if you like exhale and your stomach like, gets bigger, your guitar is going out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's in a pretty stationary position, I think is why, you know, and you see like Alexi Leo, you know, he would do that. And I mean, it looks, it looks fucking cool, but you know, I think there's more to it than just it looking cool. And there's a lot of players who tend to do that. Um, and I mean, I know when I play something tricky, sometimes I'll put my left foot up on the monitor and have my guitar sitting on it. And that kind of like emulates the position I'd be in when I'm sitting. Is there a specific type of riff that you do that one for? Dude, you know what? It's been so long since I've played a show. I'm having a hard time even thinking about what it would be. But anything that really travels um, the strings, you know, I think is is a big one like that. If I'm going, you know, covering like five or six strings and something, that's where I want to be in a pretty neutral position because that wrist bend is becoming far more exaggerated. And like your finger reach because your arm is down and now trying to reach over the fretboard versus right here where it's a more comfortable spot. You're having to drop like your shoulder and other things as well. I'd probably say that or um you know where like no man's land is when you're playing live and like with the guitar on a strap is like above the 15th fret on like your e a or d string <laughs> that is like treacherous trying to play that <laughs> dude you know it's like really far up your arm is like poking into your side and you're having to like really curl your wrist that's a tough spot for me for sure no man's land that's a good uh that's a good place or like that that's a good name I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, hang out with us, man. It's been a pleasure. Dude, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This this is really cool, and this is de- definitely one of the more fun podcasts. This is this has been really nice. A lot of, like, cool topics, you know, and just, like, nice conversation. You know, it's really it's really fun to, like, riff, riff hard on uh, conversation, <laughs> yeah. you know? It, it's cool. It feels nice. It, it's enjoyable. I like that. So thank you. We appreciate it, man. Thank you. Great to meet you, Miles, as well. <laughs> Likewise. Sounds like he really knows his theory. Kind of feel scared when people are that knowledgeable of it, but I did follow everything that he was saying. <laughs> well, yeah, I followed what he was saying, but he's so quick with it. Only people that know what they're talking about are that quick to just fire shit off like that. Yeah. It gets even crazy. Like he was talking about that uh, guitar player that he had where he would play him something and then the guitar player would throw, you know, play it straight back. Those kinds of people, there's actually one in the Riff Hard members group and you, you know, because you've spoken to him, it's Nizar. And uh, mm-hmm. those people freak me out completely. I don't understand how you can be that in depth with knowledge of intervals to play something back when you've heard it once. I know it's probably quite common in the classical world. No, it's not. Is it not? Interesting. Okay. I think that it's just super uncommon for someone to be wired like that. 
Yeah. Nizar played, played a piece of music after I played it to him once on the piano. And it was mind blowing to me because you don't meet those kind of people very often. Yeah. Just wired for music. Yeah. <laughs> like, does he have perfect pitch? No. Are you sure? He told me he didn't, but that might be a lie. I don't necessarily think that you need perfect pitch for that. It's understanding of intervals. Yeah, but if you play it back in the exact right key, like you hear it and then you play it. I think you only need relative pitch for that. Work it from the note that you know well. The weirdest thing is, though, it wasn't just a single note phrase. It was chords and the whole thing. That's kind of what I'm getting at. It was wild. Yeah, it was pretty wild. But I guess if you understand the sounds... It, yeah, it was. I'm still freaked out by it, to be honest. I've never seen anyone do that before. Yeah, it sounds to me like he doesn't think about it. He understands the sounds. He knows the, the sounds of chords, has a huge dictionary of them, and for somehow can just store it in there and knows what it is. Yeah, but it sounds like when he's like uh, doing something like that, it just comes to him. Like, it doesn't sound to me like there's a lot of thought involved. I mean, I'm sure that he's put a lot of thought into it, but it doesn't sound to me like he sits there and, like, thinks through how to replicate that. He just knows the sound, and it works. And uh, that's kind of in line with what Miles was saying about trying to not think about that stuff when you're writing. I, I think it's really, really difficult to do, though. The more information you have the harder it is to shut that shit up when you're trying to write. I think so too. I think the guitar players, especially they, they focus so much on the patterns that is associated with what they know as well, where it's like part of the muscle memory. So one thing that I did is I tuned my guitar differently to what I was used to, to get out of that. And then at that point you're forced into using your ears only. <laughs> you kind of can't really get around it at that point. What are the biggest problems that you've noticed when people submit riff rescues just out of curiosity because you know riff rescue is uh something we offer on riff hard where people submit their uh let's just say half written or incomplete song fragments sometimes it's whole songs actually yeah sometimes it's not the the person requires me to necessarily write riffs it's to them they kind of want the final polish you know it's like the mastering to their songwriting so it's still incomplete like there might be all the sections but it's incomplete yeah, it's incomplete. Yeah, but it, it ranges. It can sometimes people send just like a 10 second clip of just a solo guitar with an idea that can be a sequence of notes that maybe inspired them all the way through to a complete song with drums and bass or anything that you can imagine in between those two absolutes. And I guess like a lot of the problems that I found is is that it always comes across as it was the first idea. If you know what I mean when I say that, it's it almost sounds like it hasn't been developed further from the initial inspiration. Like it's still just the rough draft. Kind of, yeah. You know, you know what it's like when you write riffs. It's like it, how often is the riff exactly what you played? You know, when you played it in, it changes over time because you find how to get from one section to the next section, or maybe you've changed the drums, or maybe you've added a new bassline. A lot of the time, it never sounds like that part of it's gone into it it's always the first draft yeah absolutely and um you know sometimes you do get lucky and the first draft is the final draft but i would consider that god riff territory <laughs> yeah i mean it happens every once in a while but uh i i think that more often than not you're gonna have to refine and develop 
Yeah. Uh, and that's also what I've noticed uh, when I've looked at people's writing is most people just stop long before they're ready to take that shit out of the oven. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, um, a lot of the time people will write something thinking, oh, that will do. Now I need to write a completely new separate riff, which I think is a complete wrong way to kind of approach songwriting. Because then trying to write something completely new without being inspired by the old is the hardest way to make riffs work together. Yeah, just, well, also I think thinking that'll do. <laughs> it's probably not a good thing to be thinking when you're writing. It, it should be, that's fucking sick. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had moments where I thought it'll do, but then what normally happens is they'll write the rest of the song and then I have to go through the refining process anyway. And there's nothing wrong with that either. It's definitely going to have to get done. And sometimes it is good to wait till you've got a complete structure, but at the same time, it's good to have that in your mind thinking this probably still needs some work, but it's good enough to yep. at least move on with the inspiration for now. So what are you doing when you get a riff rescue to work on? And like, what, what's your criteria for picking one? So it's normally whether it inspires me in the moment. If I listen to a sequence of notes or a part of a riff, or maybe even it's a chord sequence within what's been sent. And if I connect with it in any way, I mean, that's the hardest part about music, isn't it? You have to sort of like it in that moment. I mean, I could, you know, there's times when I've written something and then a couple of months later, I don't like it, or maybe I like it even more than I did when I initially wrote it. So in that moment, I need to obviously love what's been submitted or at least have a good understanding of what I could do to improve it. And that could be even just as little as three notes that are played in a certain way um, that I can take that and sort of manipulate it further to help the, the member with finishing their riff ideas. Yeah, so once you do that, then what happens? So I'll pick a riff or a song from a member, um, go live on a, <laughs> doing it live is quite stressful, but uh, do it live so anyone can come and watch and see it. That's a member of Riff Hard. I'll play the original riff and then start getting the assets into a DAW and show exactly what I would do down to me fucking up the guitar part X amount of times, programming drums, playing in the bass, and even expanding further from the initial idea, showing like taking parts of their riffs or chord sequences and showing how they could do things differently to maybe take the song in a completely different direction than they were thinking of. That's kind of the whole point. It's about trying to inspire the the member to take their, their place to maybe somewhere they haven't thought of yet. And so they don't get stuck in the future. So they have this set of like sort of it's kind of like skills, you know, you use tapping for certain sections or you use sweep picking, alternate picking, inside and outside picking, whatever, and use all these different techniques to create different sounds. But no one ever really thinks about if they can take the three notes and what they could do to manipulate it even further to go to different places with their song. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with Riff Rescue. Riffhard.com. Come check out Riff Rescue and submit your riffs and uh, have your songs actually come out good <laughs> hopefully <laughs> i'm just kidding i know a lot of you uh have awesome songs already yeah they do definitely yeah if you want to get your shit together on guitar riffhard.com i'll see you next week brown see you next week mate thanks for listening to the riff hard podcast we'll see you next week